I think we're ready now. It's always a technology stuff. I'll blame it on the hurricane. How about that? Well, uh, good evening. Hope you've had a great day. A little, little bit of a damp day for sure. Just it'll make us appreciate sunshine more, even when it when it does show up. So uh, looking forward to that. How many people here were without power this weekend? Anybody? Brother Reed, Clark's. Everybody back, got power back on, I assume. Oh, okay. Wow, okay. Got back on today. Well, you know, it just shows how much we're, we're dependent on power, for sure, and electricity. Uh, let's see. Remind you, GBC Connect is out. So pick up that. Um, always lots of announcements. A couple of good articles in there you'll enjoy reading. And um, uh, then our, our um, weekly announcements page, front and back, full of stuff. So... Um, it turned out to be a, a little bit more of a news, uh, news cycle to start the month, but we really have a lot going on in October. So uh, take a moment to, I won't mention all those details, uh, really not a whole lot coming up in the next uh, few days. A lot of things happening today, including a new study we're starting here in just a moment. And uh, remind you about the missions table that's out there. So this is the only Sunday night. Some of you have been here on Wednesdays, you're familiar with it. But we've got a missions table out there. And uh, any goods you get and donations you make because of that will go to Tabernacle Children's Home. So this is the last night it's going to be out, or the only night it's going to be on Sunday. It's been on Wednesdays for the last few weeks. And uh, so just get one of these and catch up with everything and mark your calendars and plan to be here for an exciting month of October. And uh, the big event we're working toward is our Bible conference. And I hope you got one of these today. It has, serves two purposes it lists our Bible conference speakers on one side, on the blue side. And uh, we're looking forward to those men being here. Uh, let me think. Let me look real quick. One, two, three. Uh, three of the five have never spoken from our pulpit. They've been here for some other things, but they're new to our pulpit. So um, we're looking forward to that. And then two others that have spoken here a couple of times. And uh, so we'll talk more in detail about that later. But the other side of that is, is the food. We've been working to make arrangements with um, some food vendors, particularly Lowe's across the street and Domino's Pizza. Y'all know them, right? That real famous Italian place. And um, uh, we're providing opportunities for you to purchase food. If that'll help you just come straight to church, we'll have your food order here, and you can enjoy it here right before service. Um, and about an hour or so, I think before service, 545, they want to open up the kitchen for that. Uh, but you have to make an order, and that's what this is. So uh, you got time tonight, of course, so we're going to run these up through next Sunday for sure, and maybe beyond. Um, but you got time to uh, make an order and get all the details done and then take care of paying everything over to the lobby desk. And uh, it sounds like a good plan. Looking forward to that as a help to everybody who's trying to get here and uh, do a lot of stuff in a little bit of time. We, we trust it will be a great a great week. The other thing I'm really excited about is uh, we've asked these men uh, to bring some special music, someone who can provide special music from their own church. So um, uh, I talked with one of them just this week. So they, they're getting that lined up. They're getting, I know uh, one's a solo, I think, and, and another one contacted me this week, said he's got a small group coming. So we're looking forward to having some some of those folks, and I hope some of the folks in their churches. And we'll, we'll take some time later to introduce the men to you in their churches. Uh, they're all from the, this area, from Raleigh to Eden and Denton, I think is as far south as they go. 
So uh, we're looking forward to that and hope you'll be continuing to pray for that. We're just two weeks away and uh, from today. And so looking forward to, to that. Well, tonight we are starting a new study, a survey of church history and Christian denominations. And this is a topic that I've been asked about over the years about doing and really had it in my sights to do it. And then, of course, COVID hit. So coming back around to it now, I feel like we'll be okay. Um, this is a study that's going to take us from now, 1st of October, uh, probably till the end of February, uh, maybe even early March. Um, because if you look at, if you know our schedule, kind of the routine we've fallen into the last bunch of years, we will not have Bible study evening groups during the month of December because there's something Christmas related going on every Sunday night. So uh, we'll do this month, October and November, set it aside for December, come back in January and pick it back up. And um, there's a sample of all the denominational logos uh, that we're going to touch base with. And I don't even think that covers all of them. But uh, we've got a lot of things to talk about. And um, tonight we're going to begin this. And it's a little bit of church history. And that's what tonight is about. As we get started, we sort of need to, we sort of need to draw a, a, a timeline in our mind from the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, up till today, right? I mean, there's 2,000 years of history there, and what we want to do is sort of get that highlights in our mind so that we can uh, recognize where these come from. And tonight, um, hold on to your seats, because in about 40, 45 minutes, we're going to cover 1,000 years of church history. So, uh, yes, it can be done. So... <laughs> Um, we're going to look at a lot of things, and, and, uh, and I've tried to include lots of images, uh, not to put a lot of words on our images. A couple of them have some things I want to read particularly, but, um, but we're going to try to look at that. So um, let's pray as we start, and of course, uh, a new series. This is kind of a little bit of a timeline, so if you should... There were some discussions this week because they're not videotaping these sessions anymore, but I think they are trying to record them on audio. So I think there might be a way. We'll, we'll get some details and get that announced. Uh, if you should happen to miss one, that uh, you'll be able to catch up and listen to it anyway and keep in track with it. So can we, you know, the question is, can we do 1,000 years in 40 minutes, 45 minutes at the most? I think we can. So uh, let's pray as we get started. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for our wonderful service this morning. A very timely reminder from our pastor about the importance of um, keeping um, Christ and his joy at the center of our lives and not to be uh, distracted by the events of the world and the things around us, even our own personal circumstances. And uh, thank you for that important reminder. Rachel, bless our evening. We gather tonight to, uh, to learn and to be better prepared to understand and value and appreciate the gospel message that we cling to um, as being... Uh, biblically based and biblically sound. And we know that that does not happen and did not happen just um, through a simple ev a line of events. There's many complexities and, and um, events and people uh, that get us to this point in church history. And I pray that you'll bless our intent of this study, um, that we may not only know more but be better equipped to have important conversations and to understand more the truth of your word. I pray that you'll bless all the Bible study groups tonight. The children are starting a new series uh, themselves, and I pray that you'll bless that beginning and, 
and the excitement that goes with it. I pray that you'll bless our other adult and young and, uh, and uh, teen classes. Just may you be honored through our time together. And bless these few moments for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So where do we start? Well, let's go to the Bible. That's a good place to start, isn't it? We certainly would, you know, in a general term, speak of Christ and the apostles. This is an image here intending to represent the Last Supper and the disciples there. And, and we know where that story goes. Eventually, following the Lord's Supper, the arrest, the torture that Christ went through, the beatings, the trials, the eventual condemnation and crucifixion to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection. And then 40 days after that, the ascension. And so we, certainly, we find the, the pinnacle of scriptural truth wrapped up in those events so well known to us uh, from the gospel writers. When we uh, close the book of John in the gospel and flip the page, of course, we open up the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, the, is from the hand of Luke, the gospel writer. It's really part two. Luke writes in, in two parts. His gospel is part one, and then he picks up the account in part two, which we call the book, uh, the book of Acts. And if you probably look at most Bibles, you'll have the formal title. This is not a divine title. These titles were, you know, of human construct. It's usually called the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And when you hear the word Acts, what you need to think is action. The actions and the work of the Holy Spirit are the actions and the work of the apostles. And I think the best way to think about it is the actions and the work of the apostles through the Holy Spirit. And so we get the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a very dynamic. It's a fast read. It's, it's uh, energetic. Uh, there just is nothing in the revelations about the closest thing there is to, to the action-filled record of what's given to us. But Acts is just a dynamic study for sure. And so from Christ and the apostles, we go to Acts. And we can go to Acts chapter 2 particularly. So if you've got your Bibles, let's take a look there. Yeah, we're going to cover a thousand years. And let's look at chapter 2. And I'll set the stage for us as we jump into the sort of the middle of the early part of the chapter, verse 5. Acts chapter 2 is the account given to us of the disciples in the upper room, about 120, go back to chapter 1, you read these details, and they're gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, and um, there's a fulfillment of a promise. Jesus had said, go to Jerusalem and wait there, and this is the outcome of that promise. So let's look at in verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem, so here's the scene in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. That's a simple verse to read, but what has great implications to us. It tells us that Jerusalem was a center, obviously, of Jewish activity, as it historically would have been, and that there were Jews there from all over. It says, it says every nation under heaven. 
every nation in which there were Jews, there were some Jews there in Jerusalem. And of course, what's happened is what we know as Pentecost. Now, the, the term Pentecost is not tied to this event. Pentecost is actually a Jewish holiday. It represents 50 days after Passover. And so, why was there such a crowd in Jerusalem? Because they were gathered for this great Jewish feast of Pentecost. And it was on this day that a miracle occurred in the coming of the Holy Spirit in the way in which the Holy Spirit was displayed or demonstrated. Again, that's chapter 1. And the power of the Holy Spirit filled these individuals, and particularly the apostles who step up and step out to proclaim and preach Christ. And all this commotion is happening in Jerusalem. So look at verse 6. When all this was noised abroad, when all this commotion, you know, can you imagine people, people on their Twitter and Facebook? To, you know, obviously not. Word is spreading throughout Jerusalem. There is something happening. Let's go see what it is. It was a noise abroad throughout the city. The multitude came together. People from the streets, people from the city, people left their, their marketplace, the people left their goods, and parents are bringing their kids along. Let's just see what all this commotion is about. There's something really exciting happening. And the multitude came together, and they were confounded, or confused, you might would say, because what they walked up and saw is displayed to us at the end of verse 6. Every man heard them speak in his own language. So you got a mass of languages together. And what they're hearing are people speak in the language that they would understand. It's a miracle of language. And they, that's the multitudes, were all amazed and marveled. Who would expect him to hear anyone in, in speak in my, or preach in my language, especially these men, right? It was just verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? These were the fishermen from up in Galilee. What are they doing speaking this variety of languages? And Scripture even gives us some insight in, in verse 8, extends the idea and how... Here we, every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born. So it's, it's quite a miracle of both of language and of hearing. In verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11, tell us about these different groups. I won't take the time to read them, but you can glance over them and see. What's represented there are some 17 nations or regions, or countries, um, Egypt is mentioned, right? Mesopotamia, which is the region that would be east of Jerusalem and uh, across the Fertile Crescent. Um, Libya, right? Rome. I mean, it's, it's quite a variety. And of course, from Peter's preaching, which is further down, there was added to the church some 3,000 believers that day. So it's quite an event for sure. It's a turning point. This is the birth of the church, is often referred to or called. It's recorded for us here in Acts chapters 1 and 2. Now, what happens to, the, to those believers and those Christians? Well, of course, 
where it's easy to see in the text, they are visitors from other regions and other countries. What do they do? They go back. And no doubt they tell in their own language to their own people, you would not believe what I saw in Jerusalem, what I heard. And so the gospel begins to spread in ever so simple ways of individuals just conveying the story that they'd heard. No one had had, you know, theological training. They just go back. Well, what happened to the Christians was that in Jerusalem, they began, this is Acts chapter 2, as you continue to read the next few chapters, you find out that Christians are persecuted. Um, they're arrested. They're imprisoned. They're threatened. This man, um, uh, this man named Saul, a Jewish well-respected hierarchy of, of uh, Jewish knowledge, well-respected, becomes one of the leaders in the op opposition of the Christians. You read chapter 9, he's chasing down the Christians. So what happens to the Christians primarily in Jerusalem and the surrounding area? They, they become refugees. They leave for their own safety. This is, this is Stephen being stoned um, there in, in Acts. And, and the same thing was being threatened to other Christians. And so they found themselves in this difficult situation to have to leave Jerusalem, leave their home, leave their family, and go somewhere. Where did they go? We'll talk about that a little bit, but we want to get in our mind the idea of the persecution of the Christians. This would go on for the next few decades, but it would end abruptly in 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and overthrew a Jewish revolt. A Jewish revolt against the Romans. Remember, Rome ruin, uh, rules everything we know today as Israel in the Middle East at the time. The Jews finally had enough. They had been abused. They had been robbed. The Romans just were an incomparable oppressor. And their revolt started in 66. The Roman procurator put in motion an army to say, this will stop. The Roman ruler, Nero, sent his top general named Vespasian to the region to overthrow this revolt. He starts in Galilee, another region named Idumea, and he comes down to Jerusalem, working his way there. On his way there, though, Nero, the ruler, dies, or maybe was killed. Another story for another time. And the powers that be of Rome wanted Vespasian to be the next ruler, the next Caesar. So he was called from the battlefield to report to Rome. Vespasian assigned his son, Titus, to be the general that, to complete this task. Stop this Jewish revolt. They finally get to Jerusalem. Now it's a couple of years later. They finally get to Jerusalem. And they find their very vigorous opposition by the, by the Jews. But eventually, of course, Rome wins. They break through the walls. The Jews escape to the temple. The last stand. And the Romans slaughter them all. 
and they burn down the temple. This is recorded in Roman history. Um, it, is, it is recorded by Jewish historians. I mean, there's no doubt to all the details we need to know at this point anyway. There's a follow-up attack by the Romans at a place called Masada in three years. And it's just an ongoing trail, as we all know the story of war. Any war, pick a war, any war, right? It's an ongoing trail of blood and of battles and of, of Roman oppression to the Jews. While all of that was happening, the Christians basically had left town. They had escaped. Not only Jerusalem, they escaped Israel and went to Syria. Now, this is recorded in the book of Acts, not the, not the part about the attack on Jerusalem, but we do know that there had already been Christians because of the persecution of the Jews who left Israel and went north to Syria. So if my computer will work here, there we go. Jerusalem at the bottom there, they went up to Antioch, Syria. And that's recorded for us in Acts. And if you remember the passage in Acts that many people associate with Antioch is the passage that says they were first called Christians in Antioch. Followers of Jesus were in the scripture, and it seems to be the common way to label them, were called followers of the way, or followers of, we would say Jesus, they would say Yeshua, followers. They escaped to Antioch. Now remember, Antioch is in another country. It's in Syria, a country we hear about in the news some today, right? Syria has two cities that become the center point of Christian refugees. Antioch the first. The second one will be Damascus. And remember, that's where Saul is on his way to go do what? Persecute the Christians. To arrest them, men, women, and children, and bring them back for trial before the Sanhedrin. That's Acts chapter 9, when the apostle, when Saul reaches that point and is struck down by the Lord and is blind for three days and, and becomes a follower, believer of Christ, and of course becomes the apostle Paul eventually. So the Christians have escaped. What happened to the church after that, during that time frame? It basically goes in-house. It continues what they could have only done and what they did in Jerusalem. If you remember a little further down in Acts chapter 2, it says they ministered, to paraphrase it, they ministered from house to house. So Christians are meeting in houses. And that's all they could do, really, for the first few hundred years of the, of the body of Christ. It was meetings done in houses. And meetings done by someone who had been assigned to be the, the shepherd or the pastor. And, you know, we, we, we know Acts. The Apostle Paul makes three trips, missionary trips, to spread the gospel. And he starts churches. And, and that, that model tends to be what is done in other places besides just where Paul goes. As a matter of fact, if we look at a map of the Middle East region... And we think about the languages that we talked about in Acts chapter 2, we can get some sampling of how these different people groups in different countries were exposed to the gospel. It begins in Syria. What's one of the first things that happens when the gospel is shared and spread? People want a copy of the Bible in their language. 
right? It's, it's just a common pattern. You go teach the gospel, but then you take a Bible to them in their language. It is still happening today. Well, the gospel's in Syria. All the Christians are there, in Damascus and Antioch and other places. So one of the first translations of the Bible is done in the language of Syria, Syriac language. It's called the Syriac Peshitta. And so there's a Bible translation. There's Bible translations. Remember the account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He shares the gospel with him from Isaiah. And then the gospel is taken to Ethiopia. The Egypt, we saw it in our list of Acts chapter 2, the Coptic population, what we call today Coptic Christians. The Egyptian Christians, and the gospel has had a long history in Egypt. The gospel has been in Egypt longer than Islam. And it was there hundreds of years before Islam. And Egypt used to be one of the, we'll see it in a moment, one of the leading centers of Christian thought. Of course, Greek, the language Greek, not just the country, but the language Greek was all spread through the eastern half of the Mediterranean region. Greek was the language of business, uh, especially a dialect known as Koine Greek. Greek was the language of the scholars. It was the language of the Christian faith. The New Testament is written in Greek. It would be the language of translation from the Old Testament to the New Testament in Greek. And so the, the Greek influence can't be underlooked at all. It was a huge part of that entire part of the world for hundreds of years. The Arabic language will get a gospel, a Bible in their language by the 6th or 7th century. But without a doubt, um, the gospel goes northeast. It goes up to the region of what we know today as the Georgia, sub, you know, part of Russia right now, the Georgian region, and uh, uh, Armenia in that part of the world, Armenia becomes the first country to fully accept Christianity in the fourth century. And so, one of those great little trivia questions, what's the first country to ever be a Christian country? I almost think Rome or Italy, even though it's, it's uh, Armenia. Um, and then, uh, there they are, and then uh, Latin will become the language of the Western church, from basically Italy and Germany, the Germanic peoples west to Spain and Portugal. And so the Gospels and the message of the Gospel will spread fairly rapidly those first few centuries, and there will be many Bible translations. Now, I'll mention it now because I'll get in a run in a minute and I'll forget it, I'm sure. I've got two samples, and this is something else I'll weave into this as we come across it. I've got two samples of Bible, Bible pages out on the table as you leave. You can see them, probably noticed them when you came in. On the left-hand side going out is a page of a Greek Bible. And you can see what it looks like. None of us can read it, right? But you can see what it looks like. It's a page of a Bible written in Greek from the uh, Codex Sinaiticus, which is one of the three oldest of all the Bibles that are known. Um, the original Bible is now the Museum of London. The 
That's the one on the left, and it's from a passage in the Gospel of John. The one on the right is a Bible page that is an authentic page. We're, by the way, by, we're hoping by the end of this year we're going to have all these Bibles on, Bible pages on display in our history hall out here. But the one on the right is an authentic page of a Bible written in Latin. And I'll talk a little more about that in just a moment. But that, that authentic page of the Bible written in Latin dates to be over 500 years old. And I'm very thankful for the collection our, that we have here at our church of Bibles. And I'll bring some others out as we move through this process to just to show the parallel. Because you cannot talk about the movement of the church without talking about the translations of the Bible. They just naturally go together. So I'm going to try to use that as part of our display for some of that too. So the, 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 the house church movement, if you will, is being spread from community to community and from language to language. And that map right there represents about 500 to 700 years of transitions and how the gospel can be demonstrated and all these different translations of the Bible into individual languages. Eventually, the persecution of the Christians, though it was left by the Jews, will be picked up by the Romans. And we know something of that. We've probably all, you know, I don't know, maybe you've seen Ben-Hur or the old movie or something. Uh, but we know that the Christians were persecuted by Rome. That was started by Emperor Nero uh, around A.D. 66, 64. Somewhere in, that, in a couple of years there, obviously a few years before he died. Um, he just, he found to be the Christians a convenient scapegoat for all the problems in culture. Blame the Christians. And the Christians became public enemy number one throughout the Roman Empire because of Nero's perspective. The persecution of the Christians for some 250 or so years kind of goes up and down. There are some emperors who really want to persecute the Christians and others who, who don't care much about it, whether they do or not. It's, so it's sort of a mixed history, but we tend to put the persecution period from the collapse of Jerusalem up until 312, and we'll talk about in a moment why that date. Now, this particular period is the period, think of the early part of it, the period of the apostles, right? And the apostles are taking the gospel message, as Jesus had said, at the end of the Great Commission, go ye into all the world, the apostles are doing that. And there, there's great histories of the apostles, not biblical, but extra, extra biblical history of the apostles and where they went and how they died as uh, servants of Christ. The generation after the apostles is a generation we call the patristic period. From 100 so this is about the death of the Apostle John, to 325. The term patristic comes into English from the Greek word pater, P-A-T-E-R, that means father. This is what we tend to in English call the church fathers. So the church fathers are second, third, maybe fourth generation Christians. Sort of depends on how far you want to go with that. And here are some names that you'll run across. Um, and, some, and notice some of the places. These, again, these, these men don't have first name, last name. They have somebody of somewhere, right? So Smyrna, right? We know Smyrna. It's one of the churches that's referenced in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches there. That's in, it's in uh, modern-day Turkey. Um, again, Antioch in Syria 
Ignatius of Antioch. Origin of Alexandria. Alexandria is in Egypt. Lyon is in uh, Central Europe. Alexandria, again, is mentioned from Egypt. Rome, of course, in Clement. Tertullian, Cyprian, Clement of Rome uh, is, is pictured on the right, so he gets a little special designation. Uh, this is called, again, the Church Fathers period. These men wrote, these men, uh, there were men in this period, uh, one that's not up there is named Polycarp, were trained by the apostles. And so, you know, the generations continue. Uh, Justin Martyr is, uh, is a name that may, may be known. That's the very word that comes into our English language to mean a martyr. If you're somebody's a martyr, they die for their faith. There really was a guy named Justin Martyr. He was born in 100 A.D. He was uh, executed at age 65, beheaded. He was put on trial, him and five or six others. And they were found guilty of what? Proclaiming Christianity. And rather than recant or deny the faith, he took the execution block and was beheaded for that. So we, his name carries some, some reference point that we may know there. Now, why go to 325? Well, the reason is that there's a, a new emperor comes to town in 312, Constantine. Constantine will win a battle at Milvian Bridge in Italy that will determine he will be the next emperor. That's quite a way to choose your national leader. One gets his army and go fights another one in his army, and whoever wins gets to be the next emperor. Well, Constantine wins the battle. What tradition tells us, not history and not biblical certainly, what tradition tells us is that Constantine had a vision the night before this battle where he saw a Christian cross in the sky, his vision. And under the Christian cross, there was this phrase in Latin, by this sign, conquer. Well, he took that to mean he recognized the Christian cross. You will win. So what did he do? He had his men before the battle paint crosses on their shields or on their armor. You've probably seen pictures of medieval knights who had crosses. That's a tradition carried from Constantine. Constantine at that point is said to have converted, I use that term very lightly, to Christianity. He was a Roman at heart and knew the Roman gods and the old pantheon of gods, but he thought, well, what can have one more god hurt, right? But he wins the battle and in 312 becomes the next emperor of the um, of, um, of the part of the empire there that he was in charge of. Shortly after that, he and um, um, he and another ruler in Rome, um, because the empire was in halves basically, east and west, uh, Licinius. These two men authorized a document that we know today as the Edict of Milan. And it was a document that said, we will not punish or torture or deny the Christian faith in our country. The empire will have full acceptance of the Christian faith. After all, it was the Christian God who gave him the victory. And so he was going to pay back the debt, I suppose. And so from 312 forward, 
there was no persecution of the Christians. Which was kind of an important thing because before Constantine, during the period of about 303 to 310, there had been some very extensive persecution of Christians and Christian leaders all throughout the empire. And so to have this in place really was a transitional event for the culture of the Roman Empire and for the Christians of the day. What eventually happens through this three or four hundred year period of time is four cities become the, the core of Christian, of some type of Christian teaching. Jerusalem's out of the picture, right? They're not even in there. Antioch retains being a place, and I'll describe them more in a moment, but just to give you an image of where they're at. Constantinople which is in modern-day Turkey, named after Constantine, by the way. The si that, that name literally means, or translated, means the city of Constantine. And then, of course, Rome, because of Constantine and the Roman Empire's influence there. And then Alexandria, Egypt. And these four centers of Christian thought and teaching and doctrine will influence the next many centuries and are still influencing today, for sure. Let's take a look at each of them just very briefly. I call it the trails of theology. Antioch, Syria. Of the four, we would say we put the most confidence in, in the Christian teaching that came out of Antioch. The Bible even makes a point of who the great teachers were that were there. Barnabas and Apollos and Paul will eventually be there. I mean, it's just a, it's just a hub of some of the great early names, influencers, of Christian thought and Christian teaching and the gospel message. Antioch, the center of biblical evangelism and theology, again from Acts 11, the Christians were first identified there in Antioch. Alexandria in Egypt is a place we probably have the least confidence in. When you go back through the history of Alexandria and its Christian influence, you just don't find a whole lot of good. If it comes out of Alexandria, it's perverted somehow, its doctrine is way off base. It's subject to other teachings. Uh, it's blended things. It, it, it just, Alexandria is just a, a hot spot of saying, you know, I'm really, I'm pretty leery of anything that comes out of Alexandria through this time. Um, so that's another one. Rome, of course, has the shadow cast over it of eventually being the center and still is today, of course, of the Roman Catholic Church. And so we know Catholic doctrine is going to influence so much of the teaching coming out of Rome. So again, we're very hesitant to see much good come out of Rome from a biblical perspective. Constantinople, the least um, influential today, of course, because Turkey is Muslim, not Christian. Um, and it became the center of what's known as the Christian Byzantine Empire, which will eventually be overtaken by the... Um, uh, by the empire of the, the Turks, the uh, Ottoman Turks. And that empire will last until the conclusion of World War I. And it's there that they begin, though, in, in uh, Constantinople, what we know is the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, and the Greek texts from there are more reliable. So again, you kind of look at these cities and say, can we trust, can we rely upon what comes out of there? I think Antioch is first, Constantinople is probably second, and Alexandria and Rome are at the bottom. 
we just don't have much confidence in the historical writings or the doctrines that will grow out of those cities. So, but those are four cities that when you read through this first millennium of church history, there's a lot to be said about it. During this time, I want to introduce you to this guy too, who you might already know, named Padraig. Padraig is a missionary who was born in Britain, the British Isles, which when he was born there, they were under Roman rule. But as a young man, he grew up in a Christian community. Think about it. His father was a bishop of a, uh, I'm sorry, his father was a deacon of a, of a Christian church. His grandfather was a pastor. But at age 16, there in Britain, along the coast, he was kidnapped by Irish raiders and would be taken to spend six years in Ireland where he would learn the language, learn the culture. But at age 22, he escaped Ireland to come back to Britain, back to home. And what a reunion that must have been because when the raid happened, he did not know what had happened to his family or his community or nothing. But he, he escapes and comes back at age 22. Stays there for a while. He, he had committed himself to God. His faith as a, as a youngster had followed, had taken him through the trials of being a slave for six years. Now he comes back, committed to the, to the work of God, he will say. But a, but a burden is placed in his heart for the very people he was enslaved to. And he will go back to them to become who? Patrick. Patrick, St. Patrick. The patron saint of Ireland isn't Irish. He's British. If you want to read some of his testimony, you can go online and find it. It's called the Confession of Patrick. This is how it starts. My name is Patrick. I'm a sinner, a simple country person. His father was, a, as many were, a landowner, raised sheep and, and herds. I'm a simple country person and the least of all believers. But Patrick will go into Ireland and do some great things. The reason I mention him always is because Patrick was involved in the Christian community in Britain before the Roman Catholic Church ever got there, hundreds of years before the Roman Catholic Church ever got there. And I've often said that the Catholics have kidnapped Patrick. He was not Catholic. He was not Irish. He was doing a work for God in a time before the Roman Catholic Church got there by nearly 200 years. So we'll, make, we'll come back to maybe mention him later. Meanwhile, back in the Middle East, right, there's a process started. Remember I said the patristic period goes from 100 to 325? Well, here's why 325. After Constantine establishes Christianity in the Roman Empire as being a valid religion, Within a decade or so, he began to find out that there were lots of different factions, lots of different teachings. How do we solve this? He called some 300 bishops and deacons from around the Roman Empire to come to Nicaea and to have a church conference in which Constantine himself would attend. So Constantine, by the way, the date for this is interesting. It's July the 4th, 325 A.D. 300 deacons and bishops. And within that 300, there were men who still had scars from the torture they had endured from the hands of Rome. 
there was one pastor from Egypt who had lost his eye from the torture he had received at the hands of the Roman Empire. There was another pastor who had his hands permanently scarred because they had been burnt with hot irons. These were some of the men there with the Roman Emperor Constantine. And they have this council. Constantine says, to summarize it, we cannot have division. This empire must have one faith of Christianity, not many faiths of Christianity. And so that started a tradition, and you can just read. I won't take the time to go down through all that. After all, we're trying to cover a thousand years. That began a tradition of the church under the direction of Rome and the Roman Empire to have what are called church councils. And you see the dates, I have them in parentheses there. And, and you can just sort of see what they were trying to accomplish in, a, in one less than a sentence. But notice it goes for some 450 years later, 460 years later, they are still having church councils. If you ever get a chance to visit the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., they will account much to these councils, as does the Eastern Orthodox Church, as does the Roman Catholic Church. We as Baptists kind of look at them from a distance and go, yeah, okay, I'm not real sure what they were doing, but I'm sure it was important. A lot of what they determined really did lay a foundation for biblical doctrine it would, that is still being taught today, even in our Baptist churches. So we don't, we don't push them aside and say they're not important. They are in church history. But they certainly did have an overriding, not just religious tone, but a political tone. Because Constantine had said, and emperors that followed him would say, well, I don't care, basically, I don't care what you decide, just decide something to keep everybody in, in one unified voice of being a Christian. So that's where a lot of the errors started to creep in. Anyway, another story for another time. This is, the, this is a statement from the Council of Thessalonica in 380. Basically, when it says at the, at the bottom, to summarize, you can read it, but to summarize it, it says, we want everyone who's a Christian to be called a Catholic Christian. All those others, in our judgment, they are foolish madmen. We decree that they shall be branded with the ignominious name of heretic because they weren't believing the Roman Catholic faith as it was starting to develop. They will suffer in the first place the chastisement of the divine condemnation, basically saying God will get you, and in the second punishment of our, of our authority, you're under the authority of the government. This is important because it became the decree that tied citizenship together with your faith. And what we'll develop on this, we'll get to in a couple of lessons, is the belief that you're not a good citizen if you're not a, if you're not a member of the state church. You're branded a heretic, and later the term will be used a traitor because you don't follow our faith in our country, right? Well, so I'll sow that seed, and we'll come back and see some ideas later. During this time, also 382, after 23 years, a man named Jerome, a great scholar by all measures, an amazing resemblance to Santa Claus too, but an amazing scholar by all references, translated the Bible out of the original Hebrew and the original Greek into the language of Latin. And that Latin Bible would be the Bible of the church for a thousand years. It would be the, 50, it would be the four, late 1400s and certainly the 1500s before anybody would have another translation of the Bible 
besides the Latin translation, which is called the Vulgate. And again, outside on the display, that's the right-hand side, the Vulgate. And the Roman Catholic Church, you see, they're authorized it a couple hundred years later, say, this is our Bible. And it was the most influential Bible for a thousand plus years, and still today is read by some, some clusters of Christians in some places. Um, and we do, we do owe a lot to that Bible. I'll get to that discussion when we, when we get to that time period. Another name that comes up in this time period is St. Benedict. Maybe you've heard of the Benedictine monks. Um, Benedict created something he called the Rules of Order for a, for a monastery. What was it to live in a monastery? became a very popular thing to do, go live in a monastery. Commit your life to God and take a vow of poverty, a vow of silence, a vow of chastity, and just go live there and show God how much you really love him by giving up everything in this world and just live in this monastery. So that's a name that falls into there. Interesting, this book, uh, about four or five years ago, was a top-selling book in America called The Benedict or Option, and it, and it referred... It's, it's all built upon St. Benedict. Some of the things he thought, this author who is Eastern Orthodox, um, uh, Rod Dreher, tried to make comparisons of the time Benedict lived to the time we live in today and what can we do about it. So it's interesting how these things sort of crop up. A scholarly tradition begins in the church. Monasteries. This is the monastery of St. Catherine at the foot of Mount Sinai in Egypt. Uh, Pastor Paul has been to that. Uh, the scholarly tradition begins, and there's lots of study of the Bible and what does it mean to be a Christian and people writing commentaries and ideas and lots of things happen. I'll skip that for time's sake. The Apostles' Creed. Have you heard of it? If you're familiar with our songbooks, it is in our songbooks, the Apostles' Creed. You can probably glance over some of it there. Um, and uh, that is still much debated and talked about, and uh, there are some good things there for sure, but it's interesting to look at it. Uh, one of the names that pops up in this from the Roman Catholic perspective is Gregory I, also called Gregory the Great. Now you know why Pastor Paul calls Greg Smith Gregory the Great. It's this comparison. I've often thought, he says that, and I wonder how many people know. Now you know. Gregory the Great, because he expanded the Pope's power and authority beyond anything it had ever been. And he standardized a lot of what it meant to be a Roman Catholic and he also was the first pope to send a group to England to convert the Anglo-Saxons. Well, guess what? Christianity had been in Britain for 200-plus years before he does this. But eventually he does, and a guy named Augustine of Canterbury becomes the first uh, bishop of Canterbury and Roman authority in England, in Britain, is established. And for, and for let's see, from 600 to 1500, um, Britain will be Roman Catholic. And we'll talk about that transition later. Uh, but Rome is in England. And the Canterbury Cathedral saw a lot of that with the death of the Queen recently. Another English name you come across is Bede the Venerable, or sometimes it's flipped and called Venerable Bede. Um, he actually was the first one to try to make an English translation of the Bible from the Latin Vulgate. It was an old English or Saxon English. We, we couldn't read it today if we had to. Um, but he at least tried to do some of that. You have the coronation of Charlemagne. You know him in history as Charles the Great. He was, he was crowned king 
of the Holy Roman Empire on Christmas Day, 800 A.D. Who crowned him? The Pope. And in crowning him, Pope Leo III, in crowning him, it signified the church was the authority to recognize, the reason I put it up here, the church now had become the authority to crown the king. And a power struggle was put in place. Who's got more authority, the king or the pope? And that, that power struggle really reached a climax in the 15 and 1600s. We'll talk about that later. And then our final point here, we, we're going to squeak in right in time, um, is the East Church, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Western Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church as we'll call them, had a division. 1054 is labeled as the date, but it's, it's sort of a little bit before and a lot after where they divided. It's called a schism, a division. There was cultural differences, language differences. The Eastern Orthodox Church didn't care for the Latin Bible. They wanted the Greek Bible. After all, they had a Greek Bible for a long time already. Why do we care about your Latin Bible? They wanted churches, they wanted the services to be done in Greek. Rome wanted churches done in, uh, services done in Latin. I mean, there's a lot of conflict. And finally they split, and they're still split today. And um, we're going to start there. That's going to be our first to look at. So next week, in one lesson, we're going to cover the Roman Catholic teachings and their uh, estranged cousins, the Eastern Orthodox teachings. And I'll talk about these two symbols also that represent those two uh, belief systems. So that's where we'll pick up next week. So we got up to the point where we got the Roman, all, if you talk Christian, you're primarily talking Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. There are some other Christian groups. I'm going to come back a later time and mention some of them. There are a few other independent or free Christian groups, we'd call them today, that are outside of these two groups, but they're very small and very minor and typically don't, uh, don't last long. Um, for one reason or another, mainly because they were outlawed by both groups. And if you were found to be a group, a member of that group, you got uh, executed or sent out of town pretty quick. So good start, right? We got our thousand years in. And uh, hopefully that's a quick overview of a lot of things, a few names. And, uh, you know, you just never know when I'll give a pop quiz. So make sure you study your notes well. Remind you as you leave, uh, we got the box out for Jed and Amy, the Appel family. Thank you for your continued support to them. And uh, we... We'll uh, wrap up uh, an, uh, another month here of October and send their support moving forward. In November, I'm going to mention, uh, let's try to give a little extra. We'll all maybe give a little extra as a Christmas gift because time we get it to them, it'll be December. And uh, that'll be a, a big blessing for them, I'm sure, too. Well, I'll remind you, uh, we'll be back here Wednesday evening, Lord willing. Brother Jim York, by the way, is starting a series on Wednesday. He, he's going to speak uh, three of the Wednesdays in October, and then the other one will be our Bible conference. So uh, we'll look forward to having Brother Jim uh, here with us for Wednesday evenings. Well, let's dismiss there and uh, remind you, of course, about prayer lists and some prayer needs. Uh, some were mentioned this morning, others on the prayer list, and we'll get that updated Wednesday also. Father, thank you for our time. Uh, indeed, we look back at history, and we do see your hand. We do see the way you put places and people and events together um, to help preserve your word and uh, to maintain the purity of the gospel. And we stand a long way away from those generations of, of those many years back, of course, but we are thankful that we can stand on the, um, the truths that they clung to. And I pray we'll be faithful to do that for the generations that will follow us. 
and uh, ask that you will bless our time in this study. Bless our evening, our week ahead as we anticipate new things before us, and may your name be honored and glorified through all we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.